0: The real old-time trooper will now sing us a song. Lovely Miss... Helen Archer. Helen Archer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would like to uh, sing this for my man, Francis. (laughs) I know a lad, and when I feel bad, he scares all my troubles. When he's your friend, he's yours till the end, no matter what others may say. He don't tell me how I ought to be, he likes me just as I am. And when I feel blue, he's the one I go to, cause his heart is as big as a hand pal. He's me pal. There ain't nobody else I can see. I know he's dead tough, but his love is no bluff. He'd share his last dollar with me. I'd rather have him and his 15 a week than be some old millionaire's gal. He's the best ever was and I loves him because he's me pal.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally?
2: I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm pretty good. I forgot to mention that um, we're going to use new uh, theme music for this one. We're going to use He's Me Pal instead of the usual song from Postcards from the Edge.
2: Oh, that, that makes me happy
1: (laughs) so uh, yeah how are you today what do you what have you been up to since last we spoke
2: about the same you know all these days run together at this point i Mm. you know i take a about a weekly trip to the grocery store that's that's the most exciting thing i can claim (laughs) um I did. I told you this right before we started recording. I did start my master's of law in intellectual property last week. So that's exciting.
0: Yeah, that's, um, way,
1: that's, that's a big uh, berry there on going to the grocery store. You actually have been doing something.
2: <laughs> that is actually so like me and a little bit ridiculous. Um, but it's all online. So it didn't feel that cataclysmic, right? I'm, I mean, it's all on Zoom. I'm doing it from the comfort of my home. Yeah. Um yeah, but it's cool. I'm excited about that.
1: I'm sure it's still keeping you busy or about to start keeping you busy at the very least.
2: Yeah, definitely. Which I, I honestly, I don't think I've been more excited for copious amounts of work because I don't self-structure my time well. I don't know about you, but COVID is tough. I mean, I think you do because you are, you're a performing artist and you are, um an independent contractor so often
0: mm-hmm. that
2: I'm guessing you're better at it than me, but I have a really, really hard time. Just like, here's a day. You decide what to do with it. No rush on anything.
1: I talk about this with people all the time. I, I bet you can relate to this, and I'm guessing other performers who listen to our show might relate to this too. Here is the thing that I find problematic, though, which is people who work a more traditional like nine to five job, you know, mm-hmm. You do your job, you come home, the rest of that time is yours. You know what I mean? I feel really guilty if um, I'm taking time. And I don't think that's a real thing for other... I feel like if I'm not working, uh, I'm slacking off or something. Like watching a movie is something, or or doing whatever it is. You know, taking two hours is some some luxury that I shouldn't be afforded. Which is really kind of ridiculous, and I try not to do that. But I, I feel like that's a thing with artists, isn't it?
2: yeah i would assume so because i mean yeah without the without the line being drawn without the differentiation you're basically living your art every day all day right so i think it's very similar to just having a home office so Uh i think Everybody's now experiencing what artists experience on a regular basis. So they're working from home and there's no differentiation between work and home and so they feel guilty about not working all the time. Yeah. 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 Like
1: and you know, when your job is to sit around and play guitar, you know, that's a That's amazing. It's, it's a weird job. I mean, it's the best job in the world, but it's a weird yeah. job to have, you know? So uh, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of stuff that you could say on that. But anyway, well, have you been watching anything recently that since we last spoke that has been interesting before we dive into Iron Weed?
2: I think I may have mentioned this in the last episode. I can't remember, but I did finish I'll Be Gone in the Dark. A documentary yeah. series on HBO, and um, that ended so well, it was really, really good. I highly recommend it to everybody.
1: Nice,
2: yeah. Um, what else? I honestly don't think I mean, I'm still on my ER and Vampire Diaries kick.
1: <laughs> That's right,
2: <laughs> I can't believe I say it out loud. I gotta, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah
1: to the angela bassett part of er
2: no not yet i'm still i'm, I'm more slow going on that i'm still in. I'm about to finish season three and she shows up much later like but i think between like season i want to say between like season 10 and 15.
1: okay
2: so i've got a way a ways to go before i get to her
1: okay so i won't ask you that every time we do this segment in this I
2: COVID er season. every time either i promise guys <laughs> <laughs> Only when notable. Yes. Um, what have you been watching?
1: You know, it's been relatively recently since we spoke. So, um nothing that really is earth shattering. I did watch a couple of things I would mention. I'm still kind of making my way through the newsroom, which I'm going to, remaking my way through the newsroom, which I'm going to recommend. Um, it's, You know, Aaron Sorkin, it's timely. It's funny because that show seems like a lot of the things we've talked about, you know, and like when we were doing the Into the Woods episode, it was like this too. Where It feels like both really recently and also a while ago at the same time. Like, it's hard to kind of pinpoint it. But because that show fixated on like real things, like the episode I just watched earlier today was the episode in which, they when they shot bin Laden, you know what i mean like that was a very real thing that happened not that long ago and yet at the same time it feels like forever ago too so um but you know the show fixates on like some very real moments in our recent history um so you know it kind of puts a time stamp on it but some of that Aaron sorkin you know god love him some of it's so so good like the best there is and then some of it like he can also just go a little too far and get really cheesy sometimes too you know um so uh that and then i watched the a couple episodes of a show i'm curious if you've heard anything about it's the new remake of the fugitive with Kiefer sutherland and um, Quibi. on quibby on quibby yes
2: yeah I have, I saw the preview for it. I was totally interested how, what, what are the episode lengths? 10 minutes?
1: Less. It's like seven to eight
2: minutes. Wow. How, how do you like the short form? I've been watching other things on Quibi, but they're really just, dis- I mean, it's like sketch comedy and things like, like I watched Nicole Richie's show on there a while back. It's so funny. Um, so I didn't, I've, I haven't watched any like drama series. So, so I'm curious how it works.
1: Yeah. I didn't know it was only seven to eight minutes when I started. So when that first episode ended, I was like, Oh, something's wrong. Like something is wrong with my TV or something, you know, I didn't understand what was happening. Um, yeah, I'm real unsure. I've, i I've, so I've made it through, I think the first three episodes, which amounts to less than 20 minutes combined. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, there is a part of me. Okay. So I think they're doing, I think there were, when I looked like, 10 episodes up, but I don't think they were done. I think they're still putting out some this week, maybe. So there's probably like 12 to 13 episodes total. But even that is like, so it's basically like a movie length. You know, if you times 13 times seven to eight, you know, something like that. It's kind of like in the hour and a half range if you put it all together.
0: Right.
1: I don't know. I don't, I don't dislike it necessarily, but it also seems like why not just make it a movie or something? You know, like, I guess I don't really get the point of having these really short episodes.
0: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, that Quibi was, God, it was worth so much money at its, at its launch and was such a great, concept. I mean, it wasn't supposed to compete with streaming services. It was supposed to be for on the go, on your cell phones, for people riding the subway on public transportation. They could watch short, you know, short form scripted content and unscripted and almost like, almost like a more organized answer to YouTube, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, COVID. COVID just changed the game, everyone's stuck at home and you, you can't download, could be on your TV. There's no, you know, channel app the way there is for other streaming services. And so I think they've really had this. i curious to see how they adapt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to, uh, what to think of all of it, honestly, but I'm, I'll stick it out. I mean, it, it is an interesting kind of format. It's a kind of an interesting way of of doing things, I guess. the um, The this, this show itself is fine. Um, you know, I he's kind of a Kiefer Sutherland is kind of a strange guy, but um, well, you know, I like I like Kiefer Sutherland's previous work, like Twenty Four, and even Designated Survivor. I liked, um, and so. I was kind of curious about that. I didn't. I didn't know who the guy who plays the actual fugitive was, um, but he, I guess, has been in a lot of stuff. I forget what his name is.
2: I'm looking it up right now because I I remember watching the trailer, but I I don't have a face in my mind except Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, Boyd Holbrook, he's fantastic. I love Boyd. He's yeah. in Narcos.
1: Yeah, he's really good. I mean, that's what I... I looked at his IMDb because I was like, where'd this guy come from? And um, I realized I had seen him in several things. I haven't seen Narcos, but I've seen him in a few other things. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It it was... uh, So I'll keep watching the show. It just... I'm not sure that I like the format as much. But maybe it'll grow on me. I had the same thought about YouTube. I was like, this is basically just... It feels like a YouTube thing. But... um, You know, I feel like when I go to YouTube, I watch highlights of things that I like. So I'll watch like deleted scenes of a show or bloopers from a show or an award show speech or baseball highlights or something. Like compilations or highlights from something rather than, I don't think I've ever been tempted to watch an episode of something or um, like a full length movie or anything on YouTube, which sometimes people do put those up. So I don't know
2: i'm the same exact same i i don't i don't ever watch scripted content like that on youtube unless it's a clip from something right
1: yeah so but all all that being said i'll i'll keep watching it and see the show itself seemed fine you know it seemed like there was a pretty decent budget going into this thing so and then I did see a preview for um, I think her name is Micah Monroe she's been in a few things that I've seen too uh, she's got a show on Quibi 2 called I think it's called The Stranger that looked kind of interesting so I might check that one out too I'll yeah. see if I can get in into this format of short episodes but I don't know. It seems like when you're in it, it's like over by the time you're kind of, you know, involved in it. So.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Your emotional investment. It's like, wait, 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 come back. Right. <laughs> I'm not yeah.
1: done. Yeah. I guess it's, maybe it's the idea of like, it's like a chapter of something. Right. And you're supposed to want to like go right on to the next one. I get that, but
2: I don't know. I love it for like commuting or public transportation.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, most people would have a hard time getting a strong enough connection on the subway anyway, you know, to watch something.
2: I'm curious if Quibi has the download function for that. It'd be interesting. I haven't looked.
1: Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've been watching. Um, I did watch the newest Jumanji as well, which I'm guessing you've seen that.
2: I have, and I'm sorry. I laughed so hard. I was pleasantly surprised. (laughs) I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. You know what? I don't, I'm not sure I've seen the second one. I think, which which one has the Jonas brother in there? This one did. Okay, I saw that one.
1: Yeah, this one had, it was the one with Danny DeVito and uh, Danny Glover.
2: Oh, God, I don't remember that. They were <laughs> I took my nephews to the theater to see it when it came out, but I don't remember them in it. So I'm thinking I must've seen the first one.
1: Yeah, I think I think the Jonas one is maybe in both.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think I saw the first one. I haven't seen the second.
1: Yeah. The second one um, kind of seems like that sequel thing where they're kind of just doing the same movie again, basically. Like, they're just kind of going back. And, you know, it's nice enough and it's fun enough. You know, it's very charismatic actors and everything. And they do, you know, add in a veteran like Danny DeVito and, and Danny Glover to kind of, like, inject something, but... I don't know. To me, it didn't quite have as much charm as the first one did.
2: Yeah. Yeah, in that first one, when Jack Black is teaching Karen Gillan how to flirt, I was crying. I was laughing so hard. He 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 was really so good in it. Um, yeah, super charming. I haven't seen the second one, though. My nephews have. They watch them all the time. I'm sure they'll make another. <laughs>
1: I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we are here today to talk about the 1987, uh, pretty heavy drama, Ironweed.
2: I was like, how is he going to describe this?
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty. It's
2: it is pretty such cute. a joy, folks. It is a joy to watch. <laughs>
1: Although I actually, I remember, you know, as people have heard us talk about on these, I was pretty adamant that we separate this one from Sophie's Choice because I feel like, you know, the two kind of bleakest of her 80s run, which, again, that merits some mention just in case anybody happens to pick this as their first episode, that we are going to try to do another COVID challenge here. We successfully did one um, last, I guess, kind of the end of May, early June, where we did five uh, kind of random Meryl movies, we didn't have a specific theme, we just kind of chose five movies that we hadn't done yet, and now we're doing the six remaining movies that we have not yet covered from Meryl's uh, 1980s run. So um, a lot of these movies are dramas. This was definitely her focused on drama period, and... um, So this is kind of right towards the end of those. This is right. There's this and then a cry in the dark. And then she flipped right on over to comedy for a while. And uh,
2: I'm actually surprised that cry in the dark followed this, because if I did this movie, I would not do another drama for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'm very glad we started with this one, because this is. This is a very bleak movie in a run of fairly bleak movies we're about to do. This is definitely the bleakest.
1: Even more than Sophie's Choice, I think?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, I, do. It's, I have my reasons, but okay. yeah, so. Okay. Um,
1: I Yeah, do you want to, let's maybe do a synopsis before we sure. even get too deeply focused in here.
2: So Jack Nicholson plays a... Um, You know, the synopsis on IMDb labels him as schizophrenic. I don't think it's that clear because this is sort of heightened realism in this movie. So anyway, he is an alcoholic um, hobo, 1938, and he travels back to Albany, New York, which is his hometown. And he has a lady love played by Meryl Streep, also an alcoholic um, sort of drifter with him. And they have fallen on hard times. And it's sort of, it's their experience back in Albany where they came from, sort of reliving their past. Jack Nicholson was married, had a family, and clearly already had a problem with alcohol and dropped their baby son and broke his neck when he was 13 days old. And you find that out right at the beginning of the movie. So it's not like I'm giving anything away, but the movie sort of takes off from there. It doesn't really have a discernible plot. It's just Mm. a day in the life of these two folks. It's bleak.
0: (laughs) It's
1: bleak. Yeah. It um, is based on uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning novel by William Kennedy. um, And... Yeah, it's just kind of a—it's a movie that takes place like right after the you know the Great Depression, and it's—I don't know—it's got that—it's got that old. It this movie feels I actually like this movie some. You know what I mean? Like I don't—I'm yeah. not going to be going after this movie. I think there are really good things about this movie, but I do think one of the things. Um, that feels very different to me about this movie not to dive like right in with this but it seems like you know how sometimes like for me it's my dad will watch these old movies on like turner classic movies or whatever and they're all from like you know when he was when he was young movies that he remembers from you know and they always seem like they're so like low energy or something because they're like old and you know, I don't know. There's like a different kind of energy and that's what this one does. It's a movie that feels a lot older than 1987 to me.
2: Absolutely. I agree with that. 100% that there's like, um Oh, I don't, I really don't know how it captured the energy it does. It is. I, I think, I think I'm calling it very bleak in truth. It's just a, very steady pace movie without any arc. Right. Yeah, that's so true. It sets this sort of latter part of the Great Depression energy, which is quiet and slow and run down and abandoned. It, it all has that feel to it, and everything in it has that feel. And you you stick with these two people very closely. So you never get outside of their worldview and you're really just watching them s- try to survive for a day.
1: Right. Right. And more so Jack than Meryl, you know yeah. what I mean? Like Meryl doesn't, when she first showed up, I looked at the timestamp and it was 25 minutes into this movie and it's not a short movie. It's over two hours. It's uh, two hours, 23 minutes. So, you know, She's still got but I feel like there's a good chunk at the end where she's not in it too. You know, like her part is way smaller than than his. This is definitely his movie.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Which is kind of an interesting flip on their previous pair, you know, right before this they made Heartburn together. And she was top build and he was second build. And now this time he's top build and she's second build. But they it's, you know, the roles were definitely bigger for, for one, uh, for Meryl and Harper and and for Jack in this one, I think. Um, Yeah, I feel like it does kind of go through, I feel like I could see this working on stage too, in some ways, because, um, you know, it would involve a few sets. So I'm not sure like, you know, your typical community theater could make this happen, but for Broadway or something, although whether or not this would get people excited to go to the theater, I don't know, but... Um, You know, it is kind of stagey, don't you think?
2: Yeah, I do. Because it's all about the performances. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, nothing. What happens is in flashbacks. Right. Like there's there's no relevant action happening on screen. Not really. Not to the story. Would you agree? Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's not much momentum for this movie.
2: Definitely not.
1: But at the same time, like, it's good, it's good performances. They're both good in it. I think Tom Waits is really good in this movie. Like, there's a lot of people who are, you know, doing solid work in this movie. It's just, it's a very uh, specific kind of movie made for probably a pretty specific audience. And, you know, I don't know. There's just something about, I don't know if it was the cinematography, if it was, I mean, like, you think about movies that were made Before this, like, I don't know why it's coming into my head, but back to the future was made two years before this, like, think about how different those two movies are, and like how kind of vibrant something like back to the future is compared to this, and yet it's made two years later. And it's not like this movie obviously doesn't have any special effects or anything. But at the same time, like there's something that's just kind of, it's, it's so drab, like everything is black and gray and brown. You know, like, I don't know. There's something funky about it.
2: Yeah. And I can't, I can't quite put my finger on it. I just like, I had no idea going in. None. I didn't, I mean, I knew Ironweed existed, but I've never seen it. And I knew nothing about it. And I turned it on and about, about a half hour in, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I was like, okay, I think I kept it's because of what I'm used to watching in film, which is a story arc with a beginning, middle, and end, and a climax, and some movement. And I I had to finally, I finally gave up the ghost. and it's like, oh, so I went to read some reviews of it, and they all, I was like, oh, yes, I, I can expect this for the rest of the film, okay. And then I shifted my expectations a little, and it helped me focus more on the performances, which were... Lovely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the performances? How did you feel about, let's start with the two leads, Meryl and Jack.
2: I thought Jack Nicholson was really brilliant in this. And I, I, I am not arguing with anyone who calls Jack Nicholson a brilliant actor. I fully acknowledge that he is. I am not a huge fan. And he made me like him a lot. Hmm. Which I was sort of surprised by, because I I'm, I'm, feel pretty strongly. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, God, you are just, he, yeah, you just, your heart kind of breaks for him. Because you see how his life has sort of fallen apart, and he just couldn't. And I think the flashbacks of him younger help set that up as well, because you kind of get the sense of lost promise. His scenes with Meryl also just generate a lot of empathy. They were unexpected. Like there's one scene where he's yelling at her and he's like sort of forcibly handling her and you it feels very abusive and you just think you know where it's gonna go and then it doesn't. They end up being quite loving with each other and there are a lot of surprises like that in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Meryl's performance I loved. When she first came on screen, it was with such a bang. And her voice is so altered and distinct. It, it felt... Uh, it, it almost felt disjointed with the rest of the film. Right. Because she comes in, she's so theatrical. Her character is so in your face. Her physicality... Her accent, her voice is much lower and very gruff. And um But that was just momentary. And then she fits so beautifully into the world. You just feel so terrible for her too. This is just bleak. I'm yeah. gonna say it again. Sorry guys, I'm gonna be a broken record. It's the only word I can think of for all of it. Yeah. It is bleak.
1: It is bleak. But you know, yeah, I think you're I think you're right on. It's it's really good performances. It's just kind of um It's kind of a dark movie that you probably would have a hard time revisiting very often. Like, I don't think this is anybody's like rewatching constantly movie, you know, like nobody goes back to this one over and over and over again, I wouldn't think. Um,
2: Do you know what else is really hard for me is that I am, and this is true of a lot of movies that are set in the Great Depression um, where you're dealing with like shanty towns or, or, or hobos or anything like that. I am so OCD and they don't, I mean, these are, the characters are home. Their like teeth have been rotted out
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they're so dirty that I like, it really gets, it really gets my OCD. <laughs> Which is a terribly posh privileged thing of me to say, but I have a hard time. I have a hard time. I just really, really, really want them to find some water.
1: No, you can see that, that it's, I mean, maybe that's part of the point, right? Is just expressing like what a rough life it is to be homeless and to be a drifter or a vagabond or whatever it is you want to.
2: Absolutely. And that's one thing the film captures so beautifully and I think it's meant to make you uncomfortable and squirmy. I have, a, I have a hard time getting through a movie because of it. Yeah.
1: Well, and it's, it's you know, kind of one of those stories, too, where they both had previ- lives previous to this, right? Like she was a singer on the radio and she describes herself as being, you know, she went on tour. Although she, she, she describes herself in different scenes as um, a pianist. You know, yeah. in that scene where she plays piano, but then also a singer on the radio. So I guess just kind of a musician in, in general. Um, but she describes going out on tour. Um, he was he was a grave digger, wasn't he? I think that's what his job was.
2: I'm not sure.
1: I think that's what it was, if okay. I remember correctly. But, um,
2: I mean, I know they're giving gra- graves in that first scene as like a day job, which is when yeah. he sees his son's grave.
1: Yeah. No, I think I think it was implied that that's what he that's what he did. Maybe, yeah. but I'm not positive. But um, yeah, there's you know this kind of previous life that we haven't seen. We've just seen you know this struggle that they've been going through in the last year, couple years. I guess it's longer than a year. They've been out on the streets for a while now, um, and that kind of again very theatrical thing of you know he's haunted by these visions which are kind of you know Nathan Lane plays one of them there's two other guys too they're kind of these I don't know angels or whatever you want to call them who kind of come back and and haunt him um these these visions that just kind of are are turning up randomly you know what I'm talking about
2: I actually, yeah, I loved those. It was, um, I thought it was, I thought it was a great juxtaposition to sort of the bleakness of the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I did like the visions. I didn't, I don't know. My brain's not working today, guys. I'm like, I can get halfway through a sentence and I'm like, oh, bleak. (laughs) (laughs) Please forgive
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I, it is a tough one to know how to talk about this movie. That's for sure. Um, one of the, one of the things that I'm seeing here, I always get interested in this is, uh, it says there's a list of, of actors, Gene Hackman, Jason Robards, Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall and Sam Shepard, who, you know, those are all pretty big deal actors, especially in the mid eighties when this was made, they all, you know, were vying for this part, but I guess, uh, William Kennedy had, had Jack kind of already in mind for this role. Um, You know, like you said, Nicholson's great in this. Could you see any of those other guys in this role?
2: Who all was on the list? Sam Shepard.
1: Gene Hackman, Paul Newman, Robert De Niro, Robert Duvall, and Jason Robards.
2: Honestly, I could see any any of them in the role. I think they're all sort of missing with the exception of maybe Paul Newman, who might be too pretty for the role, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, they're missing that sort of affability. Such a tough role, and he's had such a rough life. And I'm not sure they would have won me over in the performance the way that Jack Nicholson did. Right. And if you had asked me before I saw it, I would have... I would have told you I don't I don't think he could do that (laughs) um
1: so is this your new favorite Jack Nicholson performance
2: yeah definitely I mean he's obviously made some great movies do you know the misfortune of Jack Nicholson is one of the first movies I happened to see him in was Witches of Eastwick and at the very end when he goes bonkers he looks terrifying and disgusting on screen, and he scarred me for life. That was followed by The Shining, also terrifying. <laughs> and then, like later on, I saw he's in that movie with Diane Keaton. Was something's got to give? Uh-huh. And I'm just so annoyed by the whole, the whole premise of that movie. <laughs> And then she chooses him, the misogynist music producer over the very good looking young doctor that I just I'm like, the Yeah.
0: He
1: made he made Witches of Eastwick the same year as this movie.
2: Did he really?
1: Three he was in three movies in nineteen eighty seven, these two, Ironweed and Witches of Eastwick, and he had a cameo in broadcast news, which was like the James L. Brooks things. He was like always in James L. Brooks movies um so yeah quite a he did right before this he did uh heartburn and then he did witches of eastwick broadcast news and then this one and then after this he went from here to batman he played the joker in the original batman
2: yeah he's so good in heartburn too i mean not incredibly likable but also so likable so you know he gets a bad rap from me i also you know this the stories surrounding him in Hollywood aren't super great. So <laughs> <laughs> there's that. Do you know what's so funny is that um, I also want to mention Carol Baker, who uh-huh. played his wife. Yeah. I love her and I love I love her older films. She's in one of my favorites called Big Country. And um, it's so funny because I... I always consider her part of like an early generation of actors because the main, I would say, the peak of her career was in the 50s and 60s.
1: Yeah, with like Giant and Baby Doll.
2: Yeah. And I would say that Jack Nicholson is the next generation of actors. Jack Nicholson was born in 37. She was born in 31. Right. Like they're actually more in line with one another. So I, when I saw them on screen together, I was like, "Wait, wait, what?" My brain cracked a little bit. But yeah. she, I thought she was brilliant. I yeah. thought she was really lovely in that role.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, they're both they're both up there for sure. Jack is what? He's eighty three now. Yeah, it's
2: crazy. It's yeah,
1: getting up there. And Carol Baker, I'm glad she's still with us. Like you say, she was born in 1931, so she's approaching ninety. You know, she's almost at ninety um yeah i she i think her last credit i'll look it up here i think her last credit was in 2003 she was in something called the lion's den which was a tv show she did she did some she did a show called roswell as a connection to you (laughs) roswell in the late 90s um you know she did a few things kind of in the late 90s but yeah basically kind of wrapped it up around 2003 i assume by choice um So anyway, but yeah, an amazing career. Amazing career.
2: I read Roger Ebert's review of this movie. What did he say? He basically said what we said, only more articulately. He just said that that it's a great chamber piece to watch for the performances, but not a lot happens. But it's a pretty slow and steady pace. But I mentioned his review because he's sort of wildly insulting to Carol Baker. Really? I mean, like it's like a backhanded compliment. He said, um, I pulled it up, I'm gonna read it. Um, Nicholson's homecoming is all the more effective because Carol Baker is so good as his wife, who has never remarried, who in her way does not blame him for what he has made of their lives because he had his reasons. Baker was not nearly this impressive in her first career many years ago in movies ranging from Baby Doll to the Carpetbaggers. But in Frances, as the mother of doomed actress Frances Farmer, and again this time, she finds a whole new range. It may be surprising to say that Baker holds the screen against Jack Nicholson, and yet she does. (laughs) F you, Roger.
1: Well, Ebert, I, I saw this. Uh, documentary about Ebert. I think it's called maybe Life Itself. Have you heard of this? I could get the title wrong.
2: That sounds vaguely familiar. And I think I've just sort of put it out of my head. But tell me about it.
1: Well, he I mean, like when he didn't like something, he went after it. You know what I mean? Like, it's funny, because like, I was when I think of him, I think of that show that he and Siskel had. And when we were younger, where they would, you know, two thumbs up, two thumbs down, whatever. And, I mean, like, he, and Siskel could be like this too, I guess, but they were, like, really pretty brutal when they didn't like something in a way that was surprising because... They also seemed to, like, I felt like I always saw them interviewing big stars and stuff, too. And I was like, you know, how do you do that if you're, like, ripping somebody's movie to shreds? How do you manage to land them for an interview after that, you know? But yeah. it's just because they they were the guys. They were the film reviewers that everybody knew. It was them and, like, Leonard Malton. Some people bought his books of, of film reviews. But, like, because they had that TV show, they really had, like, a wider audience, probably, for film reviewers than just about anybody short of whoever was doing the New York Times reviews, you know? So, and he and Gene Siskel, I guess, really kind of hated each other, too, which was surprising. They, like, really, like, yeah, they, would like, go each other the whole time and, like, did not get along well at all, so. Amazing. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So I'm not surprised that he did that because I think he did that a lot. He just kind of was one of those people who's, you know.
2: So put insulting. His-
1: yeah, he wasn't afraid to just like tell you he really hated your movie. And he expected that you would try harder next time. And, you know, like, oh, well.
2: Maybe she didn't show you great range in her previous career because she was given shit roles to choose from, Roger.
1: That's
0: true. <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> Um I wanted to mention too, Tom Waits has a role in this movie. I don't know how much um how, how many movies of, of Tom Waits you've seen. Tom Waits is primarily known as a singer-songwriter, and he is one of the greatest singer-songwriters in the entire world in the history of music, I would say. Um he has written, he his voice is an acquired taste, which he would tell you. You know, he he sounds like this when he's talking and when he's singing. But he um he really he and his wife, he he married a woman named Kathleen Brennan in the mid eighties, not long before this I think it was like nineteen eighty-three or so. And since then they've written most of the stuff that they've that he has put out together. He writes it with her. And um, but you know, his career before that and and since then, I always like to try to give her credit too, because I feel like she's very overlooked, but um they have written some of the most beautiful music that I think has ever been written. Like he's, there's just something about his music. So, um, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but when, when I moved to Arizona in 2011, um, when I first got there, I had, like nothing to do for a period of time. You know, like I wasn't established there because I'd always been in the Midwest. So I like, I wasn't getting very many gigs and I didn't have very many students right off the bat. I had like, you know, these kind of lean months where I didn't have very much going on. And I had just put out a record of my own. And so I didn't have enough songs to record a new record. And so what I did was I started recording a CD of Tom Waits songs. I was going to put out a CD of Tom Waits covers. I had been, you know, doing a song or two of his in most of the shows that I'd done for years. And so I started, you know, when I got there and I just kind of did one a day. This was before I did my YouTube thing. And um, I recorded like a song a day of his for months. And all of a sudden I had 135 of his songs recorded, which is more than you can put on a CD. <laughs> like quite
2: That's a bit. thing.
1: And so nothing has ever come of this because it's one of the few times in my uh, life that I've been, like, really stubborn about something and I felt like it was the most creative period, I think, maybe that I've ever had. Um, I was just so enamored of his music and just relished the time that I had to just, like, dive deep into somebody's body of work like this. It was amazing. And I didn't feel like I could take these 135 songs and whittle it down to like 10 and put it on a CD, you know. Wow. And so I was just kind of stubborn about it. And was like, I'm either putting out the whole thing as like a box set, which you know there's not a huge market for, or not at all. And um, so I worked with with Tom Waits' uh, management and his his uh, you know his uh, publishing company and all that, and they were all really supportive of the project and. Um, they asked for some of the songs that I had cut to be sent to them so they could listen to them, which I thought was a really nice gesture. Um, So nothing has come of it, but I, you know, I, Tom Waits is a huge part of my life is what I'm saying. (laughs) It's, it's, it's funny to see him and Meryl intersect like this because, you know, they're from two different worlds and yet there they are together in this movie for me. So.
2: I think in some ways he's, he's the heart of the movie.
1: Yeah, I think so too.
2: Yeah, there's something so um well, he's just charismatic and obviously a character, but there's something really touching and warm and uh, about his about his character. He plays a friend of Jack Nicholson's character who's also homeless and struggling and uh he finds out at really close to the beginning, right. That he has cancer mm-hmm. and is dying and tells yeah. Jack Nicholson. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And he's also one of the few moments he brings the, kind of the few moments of like fun and lightness to it. You know, that scene where he's drunk and kind of singing and uh, you know, they're laughing and having a good time for once, in the, Yeah, <laughs> you know, which is, A welcome relief i think that's another thing that he kind of excels at is that kind of type of like bringing these wild crazy stories that seem like tom Waits stories and yet you know it's like they just basically let him be himself in these movies
2: (laughs) totally and you know what there is some humor in this movie it's not all bleak it's just easy to miss it because because it's so depressing
1: yeah Yeah. Um, We should mention this uh, is directed by a man named Henry Mm Babenko, who I think is from Argentina. And he uh, he made uh, really only this movie and Kiss of the Spider Woman that I recognize. He made he's made, you know, a number of movies. Unfortunately, he died in uh, 2016. He had a heart attack. um, So he's no longer with us. But his his. His career before that, it seems like he made a lot of uh, Spanish movies that I just am unfamiliar with, um, and so his his filmography is really kind of interesting because uh, I I guess I'm kind of what led him to this movie, I would be curious, you know?
2: Right. Um. You know, one of his previous movies is mentioned in Roger Ebert's review, and how um, that world that that previous film captures. Um, sort of the, the streets of San Paulo, and he compared the two. That that there was something about the world, the worldview and the environment that sort of made sense chronologically for Roger Ebert.
1: Was it Was it Kiss of the Spider Woman? He was talking about.
2: Um, it was. Let me look it that up. Was
1: right before that, that he did, which one William hurt his Oscar,
2: right. No, that I'm gonna say this wrong. You're gonna have to cut this out, Zach. Is it it's Picoty? I oh
1: yeah, no, I think I assumed it was like Don Quixote. I don't know either, but pick, I assume Picotti, but I don't know. O-T. Yeah, and it looks like it was nominated for a Golden Globe, that one for best foreign film. Yeah, so he's got kind of an interesting body of work. Um, you know, I, I guess these were his two movies here in the States from the looks of it, and um you know, this one Ironweed didn't do. Unfortunately, it didn't do particularly well. Um, the budget was twenty-seven million, and I think the gross was like seven and a half million. Ultimately, so it didn't. It definitely didn't make any money, and it might have lost some. Shocking. Yeah. But um, yeah, kind of a kind of an interesting one. It, they were uh, each nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actor and Best Actress. It was an interesting year, to say the least. It was the year that Cher won uh, Best Actress for Moonstruck.
2: My favorite.
1: Is it? Okay, so here's the here's the thing. Okay, I'm going to read the nominees. I'm just pulling okay. it up. Uh, the nominees that year were in the Best Actress category were Meryl for this, uh, Cher who won for Moonstruck, Glenn Close for Fatal Attraction, mm. Holly Hunter for Broadcast News. Oh. And Sally Kirkland for Anna. Have you seen that movie, Anna? No. It's Sally Kirkland's kind of like high point in her career. Yeah. Um and it's funny because if you go watch, you can you can see Shares, you know, winning uh, her awards speech on YouTube. And uh Sally Kirkland kind of does the thing that a few people over time have done, which is her face is not pleased in the moment. It's like she remembers, oh, you have to smile and clap, but her initial reaction is like, you've got to be fucking kidding
2: me. Hearing those nominees, um, I have not seen Anna, but um, I would have probably given it to Holly Hunter for broadcast news.
1: Okay, so here's the interesting thing. Uh, Holly Hunter, of course, did win a few years later for the piano. Glenn Close, of course, has had this long, amazing career. A lot of people think that she should have, like Glenn Close fans will tell you that she should have won for Dangerous Liaisons, but... Mm -hmm. I don't remember who beat her. I think that was maybe the Jodie Foster year for the accused, which seems like, yeah, that's a good performance too. And I'm not saying that Sharon Moonstruck wasn't great. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but there are a lot
2: there. She's lovely in it, but I think the reason she ended up getting it is because the movie is so colorful and lovely. Right. And, you know, I think just a large part of it is her charisma. Um, I'm I'm not sure how challenging it was acting wise. Although I don't, I don't know what are the metrics for measuring that. I don't right. know.
1: <laughs> there are all I'm saying is like for people who are interested in doing this kind of retroactive fixing of, you know, awards that were given to the wrong person. There are a lot of people who would say that this is the year Glenn Close really should have won for fatal attraction. Cause it's a pretty iconic performance. Um,
2: It's true, and and honestly, my guess is at the time and even now, people have such a hard time with women being nasty.
1: Mm -hmm. There was also probably a sense because remember Glenn Close. I I think actually Glenn Close's run. I think she was nominated like every single year between like eighty two and eighty seven. So there there was probably also this like well obviously. We can get, you know, like she'll be up for this again. We can give this to her, but this is probably Cher's high point, you know, that kind of attitude. Yeah. So, you know Um, anyway, so Jack was also nominated. He lost to Michael Douglas for wall street. The other um, nominees that year were William Hertz in broadcast news. Again, he had just won two years earlier, Marcelo Mastrioni for dark eyes and Robin Williams for good morning Vietnam. Um, This Yeah, this movie was not nominated in any other category. It was not up for Best Picture or Best Director or anything like that. Um, It was only up for uh, Jack and the Golden Globes, which I thought was interesting. Because again, in the Golden Globes, instead of the Oscars, they for the lead male and female categories, they break it down. So there's basically twice as many nominees because they have a comedy and musical category and drama category. And so in the drama category, it was still Michael Douglas that he lost to, but the other nominees were John Lone for The Last Emperor, Nick Nolte for Weeds, which I've never even heard of that movie, and Denzel Washington for Cry Freedom. Um, So in the Best Actress drama at the Golden Globes, Meryl was not even nominated, but the other nominees were Sally Kirkland for Anna, who actually won, Rachel Chagall for Gabby, A True Story, Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, Faye Dunaway in Barfly, and Barbara Streisand in Nuts. So the other nominees, uh, Sharon Moonstruck and Holly Hunter in Broadcast News, were nominated, but they were on the other side. They were on the comedy side. Yeah, I don't know. It's It was just kind of interesting that Merrill wasn't even nominated at the Golden Globes, even though there were twice as many nominees, but somehow managed to get that Academy Award nomination in there.
2: Yeah, interesting. Hmm. I believe they ceremonies are fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is it is kind of a fun um thing. Her as as many people point out in the uh, comments, if you do go and watch Cher's speech, Meryl seems happier about Cher's win than than Cher does. Like she is just she is just <laughs> so excited for Cher. Um, and Cher then also gives her a big shout out, uh, calling her Mary Louise Streep. She, you know, just says, "I got to do my first movie with Mary Louise Streep, and now I'm nominated against her." And you know, so there was a lot of love between them, that's for sure. Uh, but like I said, it's funny because Meryl goes nuts for Cher, and then you just look over and you see the look on poor uh, Sally Kirkland's face, and she's just so. <laughs>
2: Oh, my God, it's so funny. So I looked Sally Kirkland up because I couldn't place her. I, I know who she is now. But there's a picture of her and Keith Carradine and Tom Waits in a movie called Cold Feet, 1989. Mm. It's a fantastic picture. I highly recommend you look it up.
1: Interesting. So <laughs> worlds collide again. Well, and actually right before um, – uh, as a, I've mentioned in this podcast, you were just talking about your ER and Vampire Diaries, and how I feel a little funny about that. I've mentioned several times that I have a uh, kind of obnoxiously and uh, somewhat embarrassingly large DVD in like physical media collection. Um, I sometimes can't stop, and so one of the one of the categories that I collect is a, a series that they do called the Criterion Collection, where it's kind of a it's a very kind of um, I'm I'm, not, I'm blanking on the word, but it's kind of a curated series. Basically, they only put out like three or four movies a month, and it's kind of a it, there's a high ratio of like really quality films that they do, and they they tend to do nice restorations of older movies, and they have you know a lot of nice behind the scenes stuff. So it's always like really interesting stuff. And the reason I bring it up is they just announced like right before we started taping today they announced what they're putting out in November they always do like three months ahead and Moonstruck is one of the movies that they're putting out in November
2: oh I love it so much I um I quote it all the time it's one of those movies for me
1: mm-hmm. I should I should go back and rewatch it because it's been a while and Olympia Dukakis also won that year for supporting actress
2: she is so now talk about or er, she is so brilliant in Moonstruck she's probably the best part of it her nicholas cage are pretty fantastic but um the the screenplay was written by john patrick shanley who's a playwright so the film is very theatrical right and definitely has that feel
1: yeah same same guy who did doubt who actually directed doubt too. Yeah.
2: yeah
1: yeah um so anyway uh yeah anything else you oh i usually ask you do you have any favorite uh scenes Meryl scenes in this movie I feel like we actually didn't even really talk about Meryl that much but she's so good in this movie I
0: think
2: she really is I love I love her song yeah there's so much performance in that song pain and sort of joy of escaping into her old self and and then also oh that that monologue she has in church
1: yeah yep Those are, those are my two as well. Yeah. Yeah. They each have kind of nice monologues because Jack has a nice one at the gravesite and she has one in church and they kind of mirror each other in that way. But yeah, that's, if if you watch this movie looking for like a good Meryl scene, that's easily the one besides the he's me pal song. But yeah, you know, the other thing with, with the song he's me pal is there's kind of this, as happens kind of throughout this film, you see her have this, it's almost this hallucination where, you know, she gets kind of dragged up to, sing, or, you know, she almost doesn't want to, and you can tell she really does actually want to sing the song. She just is a little trepidatious about it for, you know, in a bar. And she kind of has this fantasy. It's this hallucination of like it being this enormous, you know, otherworldly success and everybody just kind of, you know, Jack has that line right afterwards where he actually says, That's as good as it gets, which is funny because that's a movie he later wins an Oscar for. (laughs) Um, And then she kind of redoes the, it kind of cuts to right after that how it actually came and her voice is just a little bit shakier and the people are not really paying attention to her and you see how it actually went instead of in her mind this kind of glorious moment. It's this kind of sad thing where you, you know, you see, I mean, I don't know. We don't have to get I guess, well, I don't want to get too personal about this, I guess, but, like, I know people like that, right, who, who at once were fantastic, and yet they're just a little bit past their prime, and when you see them see that about themselves, that's a really hard thing to watch, and that's kind of the moment that she, like, realizes that about herself, that she's not quite as capable as she used to be, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, no, it was heartbreaking utterly heartbreaking I think I have one other favorite movie moment in the film and because it's sort of one of the rare with the exception of Tom Waits is one of the rare moments of humor in the film (laughs) when he 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 stops he's just hop hopped off the rags wagon he had a day job with this rag seller and he's in front of This couple's home and they come out of the house and he asks the lady if she knows where he can get a turkey. And the husband comes out as very defensive because he thinks he's, you know, um, a street rat and doesn't want him on the porch. And he's like, what did did you ask? He says, I asked asked her where I could get a turkey. And he's like, what do you, he says, what do you want one for or why? And Jack Nicholson just looks at him and says, because... Because my duck died <laughs> or or I lost my duck or something, and it his facial expression is so fantastic, and i I laughed. I like belly laughed. <laughs> like why do you think, man, why do you think I want a turkey
0: right
1: <laughs> yeah. There's, there are some of these, I will say, this is probably not a movie that you could half pay attention to just because it's. there are some surreal moments where you're like, what the hell is happening right here? You know, where it would really be kind of strange out of context, some of these. Yeah, but, I um, agree. So, I don't know if you have your list in front of you. I have to bring mine up.
0: Oh,
2: this is going to be hard.
1: I know. This one is so, it falls in that category, doesn't it, of... This one is so different than all the other ones. It's really hard to compare.
2: Uh, and I am ha- having trouble separating it from how you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna I'm gonna tell tell everybody I'm gonna wait to rank them. Okay. Because I, I can't quite I can't quite fully remove myself from the bleakness at this moment to rank it where it probably needs to go performance-wise.
1: Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna tentatively give mine a spot, but I'm not going to pen it in a pencil. it in. Um, I'm actually going to put it at 22 in both lists right after. So uh prefer- I won't read the whole list or anything, but performance wise, that's following mama Mia to Florence Foster Jenkins out of Africa and death becomes her kind of in that middle range, yep. but it's still above. I have it still above deer Hunter and mama Mia and little women and defending your life and some other really good movies that you know, I just think she's a little better in this than those movies. I'm a little hesitant. It actually is underneath in the, in the film. It's also in my 22 spot for now, which is so like the last few before this are Manchurian Candidate, Music of the Heart, Death Becomes Her, and then Ironweed. So it's actually right underneath Death Becomes Her in both categories. And I don't know if you've heard from any of our listeners. I've heard from multiple listeners who were a little bit, surprised that we were not bigger fans of death becomes her so i think a little bit of that is factoring in in my decision too there's a lot of people who have a lot of love for death becomes her who were surprised that it, this isn't like within our top 10 for either of us
2: Nating, it shows you the power of our sentimental attachments to films right because she's ranked some of her movies i've ranked much higher than they probably deserve to be because of my own sentimental attachment to it so I hear you. I hear you, folks.
1: Well, and we also, I don't remember saying anything particularly, uh, you know, like critical of that movie, except for the fact that Isabella Rossellini literally wears no clothes in the movie. (laughs) Um,
0: That
1: was kind of the only thing that we were a little bit critical of, as far as I remember. And there were, I guess, the fat suit thing we kind of went after in that one.
2: Sort of the social politics of it were a little dated and off, but I remember I mean, you and I were both pleasantly surprised by by <laughs> how well it holds up, like special effects yeah. and. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah, I do know that that movie and one of the things that, you know, from a few of our listeners has been made clear to me, too, that within the gay community, that movie has a special place. Ah, and so, sense. you know, we may just not be the right, uh, you know, spokespeople oh. for that angle which is you know which is part of that and that's that's fine too but i don't i there are very 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 few movies i think even the Homesman, i would say which i think is kind of at the bottom of our list yeah i don't think the Homesman is a bad movie i just think it's not a fun movie that one is another one that's kind of bleak and not fun at all
2: i don't have a lot of love for it <laughs> But uh, yeah no <laughs> i'm not a huge fan
1: But that also is a movie that she had relatively little to do with, you know, a tiny little, tiny little scene and her daughter is in it. But, um, you know, so for whatever it's worth, listeners, it's it's not that we don't like these movies. It's just literally something has to be at the bottom. We've done over 40 movies. So, you know, something's got to be there if something's going to be at the top. So um, anyway. We'll see. We'll see how these uh, next six movies go. I'll, I will probably wait to kind of firm up any of my uh, things until we're done with all six of these and kind of reassess after that. But um, Ironweed, I suspect, will be in that middle to middle bottom category Not because it's bad. Just because it's you know a very different kind of performance. It's also in some ways a smaller role for Meryl than sometimes she plays. You know, yeah. it's in the '80s movies. It's probably her smallest role.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It, yeah, it's not. You're, yeah, you're right. It's definitely Jack Nicholson's film. How many times can I say yeah? <laughs> although, yeah,
0: although yeah.
1: you know, this is one too where maybe you know, unlike the death becomes her thing, maybe are we likely to get people who who write us and say, I can't believe you didn't have Ironweed High.
2: <laughs> I doubt that.
1: Are there Ironweed diehards out there?
2: Should we like. Should we? take bets
1: <laughs> i would love that i hope somebody just does it uh, as a goof if nothing else <laughs> right. i
2: don't know i dare somebody to say this movie's not bleak
1: yeah i don't think there's any argument about its bleakness it's just um yeah
2: it's and it's not a bad movie it's good performances it doesn't it's not equal bad. definitely doesn't equal bad
1: yeah so um okay well should we move on to her other uh yeah. Um, oh, wait. Actually, you know what? There is one thing that I usually do here, um, which is to read a, sorry, I'm trying to pull one up here.
2: One of the reviews.
1: One of the negative reviews. And uh, there are only two one-star reviews on IMDb, which is not a lot. There's over 50 reviews and only two of them are one star. So that's pretty good, actually.
2: It has a pretty um, high. It's a 6.7, which is pretty good.
1: Right. Right. I think people I think people will say, like, this is a very, you know, like, well made movie in its own way. It's just, I won't say the B word again. Okay, here we go. This is a, (laughs) this is written by Lamore AJ 221. And this was written in uh, 2007. The Again, this is not an endorsement. I just read these for for the sake of... uh, they. Sometimes they just make me laugh is really what happens. And this is one of those. I actually think this is kind of funny. So the title of this is Painfully Dull, Surefire Cure for Lack of Sleep. This movie is the ambient of its day. I worked in a movie theater, and the first night we had a sold-out audience. We had to wake most of them up at the end. Sadly, I am not making that up. The next show... We had 12, and the shows after that we averaged 4 to 10. Worse, we had to keep it a second week as the next show, Last Crusade, was being held over. Oddly enough, the book is just as bad. Poorly scripted, miscast, and dreadfully edited. Meryl Streep's character dies without any buildup. We figured she must have finally read the script and discovered how erratic it was and left in disgust. (laughs) Watch this if you have troubles going to sleep. Oh, I think that's kind of funny. That's a funny yeah,
2: that's review. Really funny. Yeah. Oh my god, that's funny. Well, it's funny. Are they talking about Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade?
1: It must be, and that makes sense. I think that was eighty-seven, right?
2: No, it was eighty-nine. Oh really? Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. I was like, wait a second. I could swear I was much older when that when wow. Last Crusade Maybe. came out, but.
1: Maybe they're maybe they're remembering it wrong. There would have been twenty years in between that and the, them writing the review. But you know, it is interesting to hear the the review of somebody who allegedly worked at a movie theater. I don't know why somebody would make that up. So I'm just I, I assume sure. they really work <laughs> at a movie theater. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. And uh, you know, hear their perceptions of like what people were. Uh, feeling about the movie when it came out. It's kind of interesting. Again, it's all retrospective, so it's, you know, he could have, or she, too, could have been thinking of a totally different movie, too. Who knows?
2: Yeah, maybe.
1: So, um, but probably not, because there were some details about it, so. It's
0: hilarious.
1: Yeah, anyway. Neither here nor there. All right, we're going to move on to our other segments, and actually we have... uh, (laughs) You people are getting used to... Uh, screwing up one of our segments here. But I I recently re-listened to our Six Degrees segment and realized we, again, did not give a name for who we were going to do this time. So we're not going to do Six Degrees this time, but we're going to name a name today, and next time we're we're going to connect Andy Sandberg. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Andy Samberg, you know, I'm from Saturday Night Live and uh, Brooklyn 911. Um, he's been in some movies as well. And uh, so we're going to try to connect him to Meryl Streep, which will hopefully be something of a challenge. If you want to play along, feel free to email Podcast at gmail.com. Nobody ever plays this game with us. We hear from people all the time about episodes, but nobody ever plays this game with us. And I want somebody
2: to. <laughs> uh...
1: So that's where we are with Six Degrees. Do you have a movie you wish Meryl was in for this week, Meryl?
2: <laughs> no, I was thinking of that before we started, and I really can't think of one. I'm sure there are plenty out there, but no, I don't have one this week, which means another segment I'm failing at. How about you? <laughs> sure.
1: I did. Um, I, I read this clickbait article the other day, where it was talking about uh, the the theme of the article was scenes that uh it's like a single scene from a movie and they usually were accompanied by the youtube clip of that actual scene that they were referencing where it was basically like give me the oscar now you know thing yeah. so it had moments like viola davis's great moment in fences that speech that she gives a lot of these were actually you know oscar-winning performances Forrest tom hanks and forrest gump when he realizes. When Jenny tells him that he has a son and he kind of goes through that range of emotions, you know, is, you know, uh, all of these things that he's feeling. And one of them was uh, not a performance that she actually won an Oscar for, but was uh, Sally Field in Steel Magnolias. uh, That scene at the uh, cemetery after Julia Roberts character dies and she goes through this range of. I can't do this. Uh, this isn't supposed to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm so angry. I just want to punch somebody. And speaking of Olympia Dukakis, Olympia Dukakis says here, punch her and throws uh, Shirley MacLaine. In sure. her. And it kind of gets everybody laughing, you know? Um, but, you know, great performance. I love Sally Field and I've really kind of grown to really appreciate her work. Uh, you know, within this last decade, I've I've really liked everything I've seen her in. I've really kind of thought, wow, she really is great. And um, but so I'm not saying that Meryl should have played that because Sally Field was less than great. She was great. But um, it would have been an interesting role for Meryl, I think.
2: Yeah, very. I'm sure she would have been great. Yeah, I love that movie. Oh, so good.
1: Speaking of kind of those classic late 80s movies that I haven't seen in 10 years, that's up there, too.
2: Yeah, definitely. I always, I, I watch it quite a bit, but I always watch up to Shelby passing out on the porch and then I stop.
1: Yeah. They, <laughs> I feel like there have been so many, um, revivals of the theater version, like close to me, the, the theater in my hometown has done it. I feel like a couple of times the Guthrie theater where I live here in Minnesota just did it in our last season. So I feel like it's always out there and I was like, yeah, I should probably go check that out. But yeah. Know, I don't. Um, So I think they did a TV adaptation a few years ago where they cast African-American women, didn't they?
2: Yes. Yeah, with...
1: um, Wasn't Queen Latifah in it?
2: Yeah, Queen Latifah. I can't remember who else. It was good. They did a great job with it.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, um, you know what we didn't do... We didn't do well. Let's do this in the end. How about instead of the uh, uh, you know, six degrees or the movies Meryl was in, will you finally wait? Our listeners have been waiting for it. Will you regale us with the tales from your time on the set of Pay It Forward? I
2: know. Yes, I will share. So they, I don't have a lot I, because I was there for a week. So they filmed a portion of the film in Las Vegas, Nevada. And, um, I was, ah, uh, maybe a sophomore in high school and my good friend from school, her dad, um, was working sound on the film and she invited me for our spring break to go ha- hang out in Las Vegas uh, on the set of pay it forward. And I was like, hell to the, yes, I am on board for that. (laughs) So, um, we, we went out there and they put us up in housing with the rest of the crew. So we had like long-term apartment stay kind of situation. And, um, I mean, it was just a great week because we would. It was all night shoots, so we would go to set at night, stay up all night watching shoots, go back to the um, the hotel stay for uh, early in the morning, sleep until like one, get up, like, get dressed, go hang out like on the Stripper in Vegas, and then we would go meet her mom for dinner. Go see a show and then go to set again and rinse and repeat.
0: Nice.
2: It was awesome. So um, everybody was really kind. Helen Hunt was very kind. Kevin Spacey was, you know, it, all things have happened with Kevin Spacey in, in the recent past, but he was very he was very nice in person. Um, it, for those of you who've seen the film, he has burn scarring on his face. And when we, when we got there in, in person, you could see, you could see the latex. You you could see like the, the, the burn makeup, the latex that they'd put on his face, sort of in person, but it was barely reading on camera. And one thing it was missing was what sort of naturally happens with burn burn scars and burn victims and that there's a stretching, like stretching of eyelids, stretching of ear. Not all of your features stay in place when you have burn scars like that. Um, there's a lot of stretching and pulling that happens. And there was none of that on Kevin Spacey. And they hadn't designed the, the, the latex makeup that way. And so he was really adamant that it needed to be fixed. And so they did some work on it, and you could see it a little more, but not enough. And eventually, he just didn't come to set. (laughs) He was like, I'm not going to come to set, and I'm not going to keep working on this movie until you fix this problem. Wow. Yeah, so they worked it out, and... You know, it was an instance where an artist was sticking to their guns about what they thought was necessary for the character. You can see the difference in the makeup throughout the film because they obviously couldn't go back and do reshoots of what they'd already captured. Um, So if you pay attention, you'll notice the difference in the makeup. That's the biggest story. Yeah. I can't rock. I have to, like, I need to pull out. I, of course, because I was a little teenage fangirl of all things movie, like wrote down every single thing that happened that week in a diary that is lurking somewhere. <laughs> and I'll need to pull it out. But that, I think that was a real, that was a real like learning moment for me in terms of the hierarchy of power on a film set. That film was directed by Mimi Leder, um, who had also done... I think she had just come off of. Oh, what was the what was the big meteorite movie that came out at the same time as Armageddon?
1: Deep Impact.
2: Yes, she had done Deep Impact. I think before that, and she had worked on ER actually. Going back to my ER, she had worked on ER quite a bit, and she was um, fairly well known. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back I was sort of seeing the struggle of power dynamics for female directors Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure I'm not sure that would have happened with somebody like Steven Spielberg right I think there was less respect for that but I also wasn't you know privy to conversations that happened between her and Kevin Spacey or anyone else you know
1: I'm trying to bring it up to see where in Spacey's, had he won that second Oscar yet? Had he won for, I think he had, I think he had just won for American Beauty from the looks of it.
2: He did. This was like a follow-up. Yeah. It was a follow-up film. I want to say it was his next film, but that could be wrong.
1: It looks like right after American Beauty, he did a small independent movie called The Big Kahuna, which is kind of a funny one okay. with him and Danny DeVito. And then another kind of smaller movie called Ordinary Decent Criminal. But this would have been his like, like kind of studio picture follow-up yeah. to American. Sure. He did this and then he did uh, k Packs with Jeff Bridges. The Shipping News with Julia Moore and Kate Blanchett and Judy Dench. Um, so he, he kind of had a few bombs in a row, in a row there. Like he, he kind of struggled for that period of time right after he won that second Oscar. That's why I was kind of curious as if he had, there are so many, you know, when he went down, there were people who were, you know, all of a sudden it was like, the, he was one of those that it felt like the floodgates opened and all of a sudden everybody was talking where, yeah. you know. Sometimes it's a surprise and people are like, oh, I didn't know that I had a good experience with him or I had, you know, he was perfectly fine in this movie. But with Kevin Spacey, it was like everybody was kind of relieved that somebody had broken it open and people could talk about this now. But maybe he just kind of I I heard that was primarily at House of Cards. They said that set was just like, you know, torturous, that he was just. He was really ruthless and really awful on that set, was the rumor. But maybe it didn't happen until that point. You know what I mean? Or like, kind of got worse over time.
2: I mean, I think there were hints of it already, but I think it's a, I think it's an ego thing over time. Because, and, and I'm not talking about the, you know, atrocious behavior that happened behind closed doors. I'm just talking about behavior on set. Um, but on on Pay It Forward, he, from what I witnessed, he was he was professional, he was very charismatic and funny, but there was, there, there was sort of an off power dynamic where it was gonna be his way or the highway. Hmm. And, um, and I'm sure that comes from, you know, having just come off American Beauty, which was a mega, mega hit for him, right. uh, yeah. I I didn't see any outwardly bad behavior. So I remember being quite surprised when he didn't show up on set and found out that there was like some argument about that. I don't think he's, I don't think he was necessarily wrong. I'm just not sure that was the way to go about fixing the problem.
1: Right. That seems like actually something that maybe is worth sticking up for if you believe strongly enough in it. You know, like that seems difficult to work with can mean a lot of different things. Some, Some really valid and really not so great. So that seems like something that, you know, like I could see somebody doing that if they weren't getting anywhere in their legitimate, like trying to, you know, but yeah. so, um, our next movie, do you want to share what our, our next one in this series of eighties, uh, upbeat thrill comedies are
2: upbeat? woohoo! We are doing a cry in the dark, which is where it all started
1: for us. Yes.
2: <laughs> yep. Um, that is our next movie.
1: And I will not, you know. Have you you've seen this movie, right?
2: Yes, but it's been a long time. The last time I watched it was, uh, I think, before you and I discussed it in college.
1: Wow. Yeah. So it's been a while. Um, I I watched this as I mentioned before we started doing this episode here. I watched it uh, the other day, kind of hoping I could steer you in this direction, mostly because I was just excited to watch this one again because it had been a while. I will say that though this one is not like a joy, happy, you know, like silly fest, it's a very watchable movie. Like the time goes by really fast in this one. Not so much the case for Iron Weed, although I also didn't feel it to be like interminably long either. I don't know if you did. It didn't feel like too much of a schlock to get through it.
2: No, no, yeah, you're right. It really wasn't, and which is surprising because it was, <laughs> I'm going to say it again, but it was two hours and 23 minutes of bleakness. Capital yeah. B. <laughs> but yeah. no, you're right. I didn't, um, I didn't ever want to stop watching it. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it didn't feel like uh, interminable, that's for sure. And some movies do. Some movies you're like, when is this going to end? And this yeah. did not feel that way. So I guess that's as Uh, you know, good a statement about it as any because if you can do a super depressing movie and not have it feel interminable, that's pretty good.
2: Yeah, agreed.
1: So um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back hopefully tomorrow with you for Cry in the Dark. We'll see if we can keep this challenge going here. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Bye, everybody. That's all.